Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, our special session today. I'm wishing and we're very excited to kick off the Great Thinker series this year. And our guest of honor today is one of the best historians of our time, Professor Wang Gongwu, chairman of the East Asian Institute of the, uh, the University Professor at the National University of Singapore. He's also the Emeritus Uni uh, Professor of the Australian National University and was the Vice Chancellor of the University of Hong Kong, among many, many of his titles, but is more known as the expert on China, Chinese history and the overseas Chinese. So join Professor Wan today is Ms. Song Bing, the Vice President of the Baguen Institute. So Professor Wang, um, I briefly mentioned in Chinese that you were born in Java, spent your childhood in the multi-ethnic town of Ipoh in Malay, uh, Malaysia before heading back to uh, Nanjing for college right after the war. So you said there was a clear idea that the family would eventually head back to China was where the home was. Was that a shared notion among overseas Chinese amid the historical currents where the home is? Well, most of the Chinese who went to the Nanyang and other places of the first and second generation would, I think, talk like that. They would speak of China as home and they were looking forward to returning one day or at least to go back regularly. Those who had been there many generations, of course, feel differently. I mean, there were, after all, Chinese who have settled in Southeast Asia for at least three or, three or 400 years who still have records of their family arriving. And many of them would have settled so long and adjusted and adapted to life in their respective cities and ports, that they would have made their homes there. They would, many of them would not know where they came from in China, except probably Fujian generally, or, or, or just a province. They wouldn't know where they actually originated. Some of them would remember the, the village from which the, their family came, because that's the origin of their surname. The clan comes from a particular village that gives them their sense of identity. But that's all, that's pretty rare by the by the time these people who are two or three hundred years settle in, in the region. So it depends on who we're talking about. But by the time I was growing up, there were hundreds of thousands of newcomers to Southeast Asia following the end of the uh, Opium War and at particularly end of the uh, 19th century. But there were large numbers moving out to Southeast Asia. And by the time, by the, by the time my father came, they were coming actually as educators of the Nanyang Chinese children. The children, they needed teachers and they would recruit teachers and they were journalists. They were educated people beginning to uh, uh, move out to, to the region. So we're talking about many levels. So I, I belong to that newcomer. My parents are both from China. My father was recruited to teach Chinese to the Huachiao. I see. And you just now mentioned identity. And um, as your experience showed that you witnessed not, not once, but several times nation building in its early days, Ma Malaya and later Singapore. So how did this multi-ethnical societies found the cultural identity and their voices in the term of history, especially for the Chinese in those societies? How did they adapt and align with the new identity? Well, Southeast Asia was a rather special place because almost all the 
territories were under colonial rule, with the exception of Thailand, which had its own king, every, everywhere else in the region was under somebody from Europe, whether they're British, Dutch, French, or Spanish, and then later on Americans. So there was no sense of nationality. They're all colonial subjects of one kind or the other. So what they tended to do were to form little communities of Chinese communities among different communities because the colonial rulers would have brought people from all over, whoever they could recruit to work for them in these colonies, including of course the indigenous peoples of those territories. So it was a pretty mixed area. Almost all the port cities of the region were plural societies with many different communities, different religions, different languages, different ethnic or origins, and they didn't mix very much. They may have a common language which you use for the marketplace and for doing business, but when they dealt with the colonial powers, each colonial power would have taken one language to be the official language. For example, in Indonesia, they actually use Malay as the, as the language of general business. And so in Malaysia, of course, Malay was the most common. So most of us would know some Malay uh, at some level, and, uh, but each community would have its own group speaking its own dialect, own language. But for example, when I went to school, because my father sent me to a government school, I went to school, my fellow students were a mixture of Chinese, Indians, different kinds of Indians from Sri Lanka, from different parts of India and, and, and Malay, local, local indigenous people. So we, we grew up together and we took that as the norm, that it was normal to live in a plural society. That's how I grew up. Fascinating. And um, I enjoyed reading your beautiful story with your wife. I have that with me. Home is where we are. And I'm sorry about your passing last year. Um, but then the family, you took the family, moved to Australia and lived there for 18 years, Hong Kong and nearly 10 years, Singapore for over 24 years. So where is home to you now and also for your children? Well, I think my, uh, our children have found it a bit simpler to simply take Australia as their home because we brought them there when they were still children, uh, 11 years old, nine years old, seven years old. So they really grew up with one country in mind, which is Australia. Of course, they, knew, they all knew they were Chinese. And at that point, when we first went there, they still identified with Malaya that we would one day go back to Malaya. But this is already, you can see, these are not very deep-seated uh, sense of belonging. So I think we were having a rather shallow and thin concept of what is a nation or what is a country as a home. So home is therefore the phrase that my wife used when we left Malaysia, that home is where we are, was one way of simplifying our understanding that wherever we are, that is our home. And it may be in a city, in a country, in an island, wherever, or particularly for, for me, and I think in the end, my whole family identified with the university world, the campuses that I worked in and so my wife and I uh, took that as very much like home because the people in the campuses were all from all over the world. Every campus that I worked in were multicultural, 
multilingual and multinational. And so again, even where, we, where I worked, it was, there was no tight or narrowly defined sense of nationality. So home is pretty nearly defined by whatever we, however we like to define it in. But wherever we were comfortable, and especially for an academic, wherever I was free to learn, free to teach, left alone to do my writing and research and so on, that was the ideal home for me. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wang, for sharing your personal story with us and as the beginning of our chat today, because your story of you, your family, um, it's a vivid reflection of identity, of culture, and as you mentioned, of belonging. With that, I'll turn over to Ms. Song Bing to have a dialogue with Professor Wang, focusing on scenic civilization and world history. So, Song Bing. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Li Xing. Uh, Professor Wang, so nice to see you um, again. Um, I think your personal history and the unfolding world history have been annotating each other. Um, you know, to paraphrase uh, Lu Jiuyuan, it is like <laughs> So I think that's why it's fascinating to listen to you. So in the following section, um, I would like to ask Professor Wang questions, a number of questions focusing on three themes. Okay, one is your theory on the Eurasian core and how it has shaped Chinese and Western civilizations. And second, the growth and expansion patterns of Cynic or Chinese civilizations. I'm using Cynic and Chinese here and interchangeably. And thirdly, the symbiotic relationships of the world's major civilizations. So we'll be focusing on these three themes. Uh, the first theme, uh, let me start with the first theme, is the Eurasian core and its edges. So, Professor, your theory on Eurasian core and its, uh, and its edges is highly illuminating. It offers insights on the rise and fall of continental and maritime powers in the past 3,000 plus years. And in my view, it holds a tremendous explanatory power for understanding the evolution and dynamic forces which have shaped and given character to the Chinese and Western civilizations. It also helps us understand the deep psyche and the underlying motivations of major players of today's geopolitical landscape, including China, continental Europe, and Anglo-American powers. So to set the stage for today's discussion, could you please share with us the key idea of the Eurasian core theory and in what way the Eurasian core has configured the current world and our geopolitical postures today. Thanks. Oh, thank you very much for raising that very complex question. Uh, essentially, I've tried to simplify it all by concentrating on civilizations. These are powerful uh, organized states or a group of states or a group of peoples who have a who can make an impact on the world. By this, of course, I distinguish civilizations from cultures. Everybody has cultures, however small a community, however small a tribe distributed anywhere in the world, they all have their distinctive cultures, their way of life, their way of thinking about life and death and their faith in the supernatural or whatever, their own, own, own origins, their own languages, that's culture. But civilization implies something more. 
And to me, I try to, again, simplifying it, basically it, it requires something that brings a lot of people together who come from different cultures, but who have some things to share in common. It could be in the form of a, a, a set of conquered territories, but conquered by whom? Conquered by people who are settled, maybe with major cities, not necessarily, but at least large urban concentrations, and with the capacity to build a state. And to do all that, they require themselves to be literate. In other words, they need to have a language which would express and record what they were doing and explain to themselves and transmit their values from one generation to another, from, from the state itself to the different administrative sections that they, 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 they have established in large territories. So the rise of civilizations is a much more complicated affair than cultures. I'm using this as a to start, to, to make a stark difference between the two. And then relatively few civilizations have survived. There were many attempts at building civilizations. Many of them have reached a certain point and disappeared. But the one, the three major civilizations to me that can be traced all the way back for at least five to 10,000 years, whichever, however you date it. But if you date it from the time they have language, it's probably about five to 6,000 years. And we can relate it to settlements, agricultural settlements and urban settlements. So there we find the origins of the, the three major civilizations today, which are identified as the Mediterranean, the Cynic and the Indic. The Indic would be what is now subcontinent of India, and, and into the Indian Ocean. These are the three major ones which are very distinct and they all have long histories and they have a literate re recollection of remembrance, a memory of where they came from all the way. Some more strong than others, but they all have it. And so I th thought the simplest way to explain it, certainly true for cynic civilization is the literacy, the language. Once you have a language, and that language be becomes a language of more and more people from different cultures who adopt a language, then that civilization begins to grow. And once it starts to grow and it supports a powerful state and the state itself supports uh, an economy that continues to develop, there are surpluses, then there are technical and technological advances, and then they become richer, more and more powerful, more capable of, ru of ruling over large territories. So in the end, how long you survive as a civilization determines the way, how, the way you have an impact on world history. Given that, I was struck quite early on in my studies about Central Asia. I just found, for example, when I started to learn Chinese history, I learned Chinese history from the South, from the sea. When I, when I was after all, I was in Malaysia and I was looking at all the people who, who I lived with came from Fujian and Guangdong in Southern China. But I found that almost all the historical records were about the North. There was very little about the South until the Tang Dynasty. Before that was all about the North. And not only that, almost all the records dealt with the, the Chinese civilization facing the enemies coming from land. Powerful enemies again and again and again over at least three or 4,000 years, if not earlier. At least the records show this was a permanent problem for the Chinese. And therefore that whole civilization having been developed in the river valleys and all these civilizations incidentally 
originated in great river valleys, the river valley systems of the Tigris Euphrates in the, in the Middle East, of the Indus and Ganges, uh, in, in the Indic civilization, and the Yellow River and the Changjiang, Yangtze in the Sinic civilization. They all started there, but you know, almost all of them oriented themselves towards the continent. None of them, at least the Chinese one, did not look very seriously at the sea. They reached the sea and they, that was fine. In, most importantly, no enemies came from the sea. So they paid all their attention to the continent. So I was very struck by that. Then I was struck by the fact that the Indic civilization was facing the same problem. They too were constantly being invaded from the Central Asian, among Central Asian peoples. And then I found it is true of Europe too. Europe also was being attacked from the, the Central Asian people moving west into the Northern Mediterranean and some of them moving south to the Southern Mediterranean, but they originated whether they were Indo-European or they were speaking Indo-European languages or Semitic languages. They came from this group of people who came from that Central Asia area. But then I, I was struck by the fact that the Central Asian people didn't have a written language of their own, did not have what I would have called a civilization. They did not develop a, a distinct, stable, powerful state of their own with a sustained record of history and so on. But they, what they did was they were either moving east or moving west or moving south. These were the three main directions. And, you, you, and once, once I began to be puzzled by this issue, how was it that these people who did not have a powerful state, who did not have a written language, could be so powerful in their own way? I mean, I started in a very simple way by looking at the Mongols. The Mongol empire was unbelievably powerful, the most powerful continental power ever in history. And they moved in all directions. They moved west all the way to the gates of Vienna. They moved south into all the way into the Middle East and in, in reaching, reaching the Mediterranean. And they moved east and conquered China. And in fact, they set out to, to, to send a navy to Japan when they found they, 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 didn't, they didn't know anything about ships, but they found that the Chinese had ships. They used the Chinese ships to go to Japan, to Java, and down to the Vietnam coast, to Champa. And so, so they were amazing. But they came out of the Central Asian place without the written language of their own, which in fact, their script was copied from other people's script. And they only started to keep their record after they became an empire, not before that. So they started without it. So I said, how could this happen? What, what are these civilizations doing facing with to be defeated by these people coming from the Central Asian steppe land, the grasslands with, with horses and so on? Then of course you trace back, you find all of us were faced with the same problem from way back, right from the beginning. I mean, whether they were Egyptian or Tigris Euphrates, Babylonian empires and so on, the, the people who came in from the grasslands took over. The Indo-Europeans came, went west and south. They went west to northern part, northern Mediterranean. They went south into Persia and into the Eastern Mediterranean, and they went south into India, into whole of North India. And they were, and they were still left over in, in Central Asia, a lot more, but they were being pushed by other Central Asian powers, people like the Turks and the, the ancestors of the Turks and the Mongols and came from further east 
pushing the Indo-Europeans basically out of, uh, out of the Central Asian area or mi got mixed with them, mixed up with them. So today, for example, the Turkic peoples are a mixture of Indo-Europeans and Mongolian, Mongolian people. That's quite an interesting mixture in itself. So to cut a long story short, you can see how I got fascinated by the role of these Central Asian people. So what I found in history, what they were doing was they did not have to have their own civilization. They were actually taking other people's civilization, making use of them and attacking them for whatever they, whenever they needed to or whenever they found an opportunity that, that somebody out there was weaker than they were, they would try and conquer them and they moved. And when they moved, very often they settled there. They became part of the Cynic civilization. They became part of the Indo-Persian, uh, Iranian, Indian, Iranian civilization. They become part, especially after they became Muslims, they became part of the Islamic world. And in Europe, they became part of Russians and all the people in the Volgas, in the Caucasus, they got, they migrated over there and to Turkey. I mean, today we look at the Ottoman Empire was a perfect example of, of this final, as late as the 18th century, they were still doing this to, to the Europe. At, in the meantime, the Western Europeans were the, on the edge of all this wealth that was developing in India, in Indic, Sindic civilization and the Mediterranean, but the Western Europeans were blocked by the Muslims. The Muslims, the rise of Islam was one of the most fantastic moments in history within, within less than one century. They had conquered most of the Mediterranean and spread into Central Asia, reaching the borders of China and reaching India as well. All that within a century. And from then onwards, Islam became so powerful in the whole of Central Asia. They converted most of the Central Asians except the Mongols who remained Buddhist. And from then onwards, the wealth of the East, whether it's Indic or Cynic, was barred from the Western Europeans. They were on the wrong side of the Mediterranean and they could never get there. I mean, we, we tell stories of Marco Polo and so very exceptional, but they had to be very nice to the Mongols to get to, to, get to the, the East. So all that time, they were very frustrated. The Venetians and all the others trying very hard to trade with the Indians and the Chinese and totally dominated by the Muslims in between. So they were always on the receiving end and, and uh, the Crusades, all the attempts to fight the Muslims all failed and they were left alone. So in the course of that, those people on the edges of Western Europe, Portugal, Spain, Netherlands, bits of Britain and France and the coast on the Atlantic were forced to do something else, including the Scandinavians in their own way, but they were too remote. So in the end, it was Portugal and Spain that provided the two great adventurers. Vasco da Gama to go down the south into the Indian Ocean, Columbus across, and he thought he found India when he arrived in America. So because that was what they were doing, they were trying to get to India. And both of them found India, one was real and one was not, but they did that. But you can see the modern history of the maritime world which became global. That's why I said global is maritime. It was only the maritime world that really enabled Western Europeans to dominate the rest of the world, it became global history. Before that, it was always Eurasia. Eurasia at its core, going east, going west, and going south. And that was the history of 
humankind for more than five or 6,000 years at about recorded history until about four or 500 years ago. So in the last 400 years, particularly in the last 200 years, the one particular Navy dominated the whole nation. That's the British Navy where they defeated the French just before Napoleon defeated the French. And from then onwards, it was a global maritime world with one empire, one naval empire, back to, to, to some extent followed by the French, but it was the British Empire dominated simply by dominating the sea. And that changed the whole of world history. So I'm, that's, that's coming to the fore now, but you can see the origins of it. The role of Eurasia was these people provided the means of connecting all the people around by moving in all directions and putting pressure on all of them to find ways and means of finding each other and having to go through them. They were the ones in between. And they, everybody acknowledges that it was in, under the, was Pax Mongolica, under the Mongols, that everything was the freest trade in, in Eurasian and the different civilization were at its freest when the Mongol Empire could provide us with one system of transport from east to west and then to the south under one particular uh, uh, Mongolian rule. Absolutely extraordinary. Thank you so much for such a fascinating and detailed explanation about the uh, Eurasian core theory. So it is fair to say that all the ancient civilizations in the past several thousand years were first and foremost continental civilizations until maybe about four or 500 years ago, the uh, the nations at the edges of Europe broke out of that continental mode and then developed this maritime powers and then, you know, tr completely transformed the current uh, or reconfigured the, uh, the, the, the overall landscape. So I may I just add one small point because I failed to say that there were maritime routes, there were shipping trade by sea and so on, but there were no navies to dominate. Mm -hmm. These were merchant ships. And they were on the whole very small scale because it was very dangerous. The ships were not good enough. The oceans were rough. Monsoons were much, you know, very difficult to predict. And there was a lot of fear and anxiety about going to sea. So there was a limited amount of this maritime trade. Uh, of course, I, I'm not suggesting that land continental trade was that easy either because continental trade means you have to fight different people across many, many land borders to bring your trade from one one place to the other. Hence the power of these Central Asian tribal people with their mobility and the dominance of the Central Asian routes, the so-called Silk Route that we talk about today. That one, they were able to do this because of the chain of caravanserais in the oases and so on, which they alone knew how to control. And that from provided the whole transportation system and made it at least possible, not that not easy, but at least it was possible and they could actually, lots of people get involved in it. Whereas the sea, only a number of seafaring people were involved, very small scale. There was no, as far as I can tell, no major naval battles were fought in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific record, or even for that matter in the Atlantic. All the major naval battles that are recorded in history were fought in the Mediterranean. It's extraordinary, which is why I say the Mediterranean as a cradle of this global maritime world is, is, a, is, a, is a definite major contribution for the history of the Mediterranean. How the fact that the Northern and Southern Mediterranean people 
in the hands of the Christians and the Muslims fought for 1,500 years is really a remarkable story. And the map remains the same. Ever since then, North and South Mediterranean divided between Christians and Muslims remain the same. How extraordinary is that that is? It is indeed. So do you see this continental and maritime mindsets continue to influence the current international geopolitical landscape? And in what way? Well, certainly up to World War II, up to 1945, that maritime, the, the, the wars at sea was what made the big difference in this part of the world. I mean, the defeat of the Japanese by the Americans. But of course, before that, the British dominated. Of course, only the British were in trouble in Europe because they were faced with uh, Germans who then were fighting a different kind of war, uh, not, no longer dominating by, by, by the sea. They were also fighting a different war. They were now fighting in the air and all sorts of things. But the British were doing very well. But it was really the, the maritime part that determined the shape of the modern world after 1945 was the fact that the American took the Americans took over from the British the, 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 the maritime empires that the British had built up. And now the Americans have the power to do that. And this remains true. And if you look at the Cold War, you can say that in some ways it was a continental Soviet Union, primarily continental, and a very powerful maritime uh, West, North, Western Europe and America, plus the fact that America had no continental enemies, unlike Europe, and gave them an, that extra sense of security. They were absolutely, totally in charge of two continents, North and South America, no enemies. And they could put all their energies and efforts into the sea and dominate two oceans. No, nobody else had ever done that except the British. And they took over that. And they'd done it more successfully than the British in greater control. But in the meantime, of course, technology has gone further beyond that. We've got the nuclear bomb, and that's another, another chapter in the story which changes the nature of, of war. And now, of course, we have cyberspace and all the technology that involves the fact that we're talking today. All these are, are creating a new kind of world for which I have no, no, I'm no ability to, to foresee what is going to happen. But until today, the maritime side of the world global economy is still obvious. I mean, the fact that China has succeeded to become the world's number, set, number two economy is the fact that it turned its economy to the sea. The moment it turned to the sea, joined the maritime global economy and opened its ports, both for to send out their goods to the markets and to bring back resources, natural resources from abroad, they are now in the global world. So for China to turn to the Navy, to the maritime world is absolutely necessary. It's existential problem for the Chinese now. If they fail to control their own naval coast, for example, that's the end of their, their economy. Their ability to, to operate would be highly diminished if they, do, if they cannot have access to the sea, to the open sea. Thank you. Um, you really make clear the uh, strategic importance of some of the, uh, the uh, uh, initiatives that we've seen coming out of China. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, in the interest of time, I think we should move on to the next theme now. I'm sure the audience will have a lot more questions. Uh, the second theme we'd like to focus on is actually growth 
and expansion patterns of the Chinese civilization. Um, Professor, you're famed for your groundbreaking work on overseas Chinese or Chinese diaspora and have shaped and credentialized this important area of study. Um, your works on patterns of population shifts in China and Chinese emigrants to the Southeast Asia also offer insights on how the Chinese civilization and culture have spread in the Asian region and the patterns of civilizational growth and expansion. So here I have a, a cluster of big, big questions on this theme. Um, who are Chinese? And then what is China? And then what is, what is Chinese nation? What is and then another set of related question is, Chinese migrants to Southeast Asia started as early as Song Dynasty. What were the major patterns of such migration and why? What modes of thinking shaped the growth and expansion patterns of the Chinese civilization? All large questions. <laughs> you can write a, five books on that. <laughs> begin, begin by saying some of those questions could be a whole, whole uh, conference by, by itself. True, true. Let me put it this way. They are difficult questions, but since you, since you date the Chinese coming from the Song Dynasty, let me start from that. That's very concrete. And let me say that up to the Song Dynasty, China's Chinese economy did not depend on the sea at all. It was entirely, first of all, it was agrarian. Otherwise, it was depending on mainly on, on other, other factors. They, but they turned to the sea, particularly as the Song was pushed back, pushed south by the northern invaders. First, first the Khitans, the Georgians, and, 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 the, and the Tanguj and others. And they had to defend themselves by seeking revenues from other, other means. And they started to trade with, with Southeast Asia more and more. And that was quite successful. But the dependence on the maritime trade grew. And when the Mongols conquered China, but even though there was that trade, it was never strong enough to make the Song Dynasty any more than a little kingdom in the, in the context of Chinese history. It wasn't an empire. The Southern Song was really a, a remnant of, of a, a remembrance of a Han group of people who had a little kingdom of their own and they defended it as best they could, but in the end, they completely failed. And the whole of China was conquered by the Mongols. But the Mongols, unlike the Chinese, actually have a link with the Middle East on the overland. And now they find that those Arabs and the Persians were trading with China by sea, the Mongols encouraged that. So it was under the Mongols that the trade began to grow with Arabs and Persians coming more and more to China and the Chinese moving out into the Indian Ocean. It was because of that that we did later on, after the Mongols, we had people like Zheng He. I mean, that's really follow through from what I would say was the Mongol expansion and have a global picture of the Indian Ocean as being part of a major transportation route for trading purposes. So the trade grew at that point. But look at what the Chinese did after the, after the Mongols were defeated. The Ming Dynasty came on and the Ming Dynasty closed it, stopped it altogether, absolutely altogether, and only allowed tributary trade, which is a completely different kind of trade, which means that anybody who wants to trade with China can come 
if they pay tribute to the emperor and in the, in, under the umbrella of tribute, trade will occur. And it has basically a very defensive uh, approach towards uh, relations with foreign powers. But that way they in fact stopped, almost stopped or tried to stop the Chinese from trading overseas. You, cannot, you can only allow foreigners to come to trade, you cannot go out. And that was so for nearly 200 years. Of course, the Chinese are very, the Chinese merchants in Fujian and Guangdong were very entrepreneurial and they found other means of getting out, but they were all illegal. And the Ming Dynasty did nothing to protect them. They were all, as far as they were concerned, it was an illegal and criminal act to go to leave the country without permission. In that context, Chinese did not go out to Southeast Asia as any kind of purposeful way. They went out there to trade, but if they could not get back, it was because if they came back, they would be punished. So many of them did settle. They would marry local women. <clears throat> they would be assimilated. Most of them just became a part of the local populations over the centuries. So there was really no Chinese community as such, except probably Muslim Chinese, because the Muslim Chinese under the Mongols, there were Muslims, children of the Arabs and Persians and others, Central Asians, and they, many of them went to settle in Southeast Asia. It was not until, I would say, the end of the Ming Dynasty, with the rise of private traders like Guo Xingye, Zheng Chenggong, well, it's from his father, Zheng Zhelong, and they were trading with Japan, and uh, the Europeans by that time had arrived, the Portuguese arrived, the Spanish had arrived in the Philippines, the Portuguese had Macau, and then Chinese began to join in, and the Chinese Ming government began to lose control over, over that, and did not control very rigidly. So that flourished, but it became, a, again, a private business, not recognized by the government. Tim Tim Gung was not a, a official, of the, was not a, supposed to be doing all these things, but he was, he built his little empire, naval empire, because the Ming Dynasty was too weak anyway. And then, of course, they tried to fight against the Qing, and they lost. And the Qing, when the Manchus conquered China, they took over, in, in the end, took over Tengtengung's territory in Taiwan as well. In the end, what happened was the Manchus didn't want all these things. They, they were, had enough trouble dealing with the southern Chinese in China itself, they didn't want to encourage them to go out and have relations with foreigners. And they just want to limit themselves to just the foreigners coming to trade. Macau was, remained very, very important just for that purpose. But in the meantime, as Manchus, they were really part of the Central Asian tribal group that I'm, I'm talking about. They were dealing with Mongols, both across the whole of the Mongolian plateau all the way to Xinjiang, and then to Mongols and Turks in Xinjiang, all the way to uh, what is now Afghanistan and so on. These are the remnants of the Mongols. The Mongols and Turks became one people and those who became Muslims became Turks. Those who remained Buddhists were Mongols, but they're actually basically the same, same kind of people. And as you know, that, that you see the Central Asian story becomes very powerful and alive again drawing the Europeans in, the Russians in, the British are coming in from India into Xinjiang and into Tibet. The Russians are coming right across to Siberia. Again, Central Asia becomes a focus of tremendous attention. And the Qing 
in, in, from China was pushing back and, and taking territory to defend itself. They had to control all the Mongol tribes, including all the way up to Xinjiang and also control the Turks and the Muslims. So again, the Central Asia was actually a focus on major wars during that period. But the major trade developments, economic development was actually coming by sea. The land was not that good for the, the land continental trading was really very limited in, 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 its, in its scope. But the sea grew and expanded and the cheap transportation and improved shipping as the ships got better and better. Uh, by the 19th century, the ships were very good, very safe. There's no longer something to be afraid of. And once you open up, from the, again, from the Mediterranean, the Suez Canal from Europe into, into, into the Indian Ocean completely changed the nature of the trade. In that context, the Chinese overseas really came out, but, but under colonial rule, they were colonial subjects and they had no rights, they had no, no status, except as working on behalf of these colonial officials and merchants who were using them to trade with China, to trade with their neighborhood and so on. So in that context, the Chinese who went out there had no sense of identity. First of all, these Fujian and Guangdong people never identified with the Manchus. They never, the Southerners were the least respectful to the Qing, to the Manchu, to the Qing, Manchu people. The Northerners were a little bit more polite, but the Southerners really uh, uh, hated them and, and, and didn't want to have anything to do with them. And similarly, the Qing dynasty couldn't care for them. No protection was given to them. They were not, again, they were illegal. They were all supposed to be staying at home, being nice filial sons and loyal subjects. They're not supposed to go abroad. So no government to protect them. It was not until the end of the 19th century, well, officially until 1893, that the government changed, the Qing government changed their policy about banning uh, people going to the South. In the meantime, millions of Chinese workers have been going out without any protection. And so they depended on those colonial powers. They were not identifying themselves anything with the Qing dynasty. In that way, they defined themselves as Chinese. And this is a very interesting thing in a way. In a way, that was a sense of nationality with, without calling it that. They didn't actually have the word nation. They didn't have the word Minzu. They were all Fujian Ren or Zhangzhou, Quanzhou, Guangzhou, Chaozhou, identifying with their dialect group. They didn't identify with China. China was Qing, Huangqing, Huangqing Digo, nothing to do with them. So they were identified with Fujian and Guangdong at, the, at, at most. But the point is that it gave them a sense of identity as Chinese. And they call themselves Tangan. So Tongyan, the Nang as in the local dialect. That was identified. Zhongguo with Tangshan, that was China. And that was a distinct from Qing dynasty. Nothing to do with the rest. So we can see what, how I, when I began to under, try to understand Chinese history, I could see this, this north-south division in China was also something to do with continental and maritime divisions that, that were dominant in world history for the first few thousand years of, of, of recorded history. And that this Southern Chinese, because they were maritime and did not look, understand the continent at all, but entirely knew something about the sea, they were developing a separate kind of identity as Chinese. And the China, a maritime Chinese was really in many ways very different 
from a continental Chinese in his outlook. But unfortunately for the Chinese, the upper class Chinese, the Shi Dai Fu, who studied mm -hmm. the classics and, and did all the, and took examinations and became officials, they all were enamored of Northern civilization. Everything about the classics and the Tao Tong and everything they, they inherited from the Ruja Tianxia and Zhigo Ping Tianxia ideals all came from the North. And so they identified with Beijing. They all wanted to go to Beijing to work, to work for the Qing, the Qing government. But the ordinary people in the South, the merchants, the artisans, all these adventurous and entrepreneurial people, they looked to the sea. And that was a source of a different worldview, you might say. And that has now made a difference. And I could go on, but I think, I think I've said enough to show how, how this sense of identity among the, those who went to sea uh, made a difference. So that you can now talk about Xiaohai. Why do you say Xiaohai? I mean, mm. it's just something new, only because thereafter the economic center had moved to face the sea. Right. That's uh, fascinating. So um, you focus more on the overseas Chinese and how this sense of identity is different from the northerners. If we look at the, uh, the northern part of China, uh, in fact, you know, people often equal Hanren to Zhongguoren. Uh, could you comment on that? Because, you know, because in, in English, it's all Chinese, right? Sometimes they say, okay, Chinese equals Han Chinese. It's not that simple, obviously. So could you um, explain a bit on that? As I mentioned, all these Southerners call themselves Tangan. They never call themselves Hanyan, Tongyan, yeah. and Cantonese. And I think they still think of themselves as Tongyan. And Han is a kind of official, the official terminology. But I think they're quite, among themselves in their language, they still talk of Tongyan. So there is, a, there is a distinction. But in the end, I would say it much depends or what we mean by what we what happened to them, Sudai Fujiji, that Mandarin class, they were a they were a minority, probably no more than two or three percent of the population, but they were the dominant people. They held all the official jobs. They were the best educated, and they were the ones who wrote the history. They were the ones who transmitted the classics and taught the values of traditional civilization, and they were highly respected, and they were wonderful in their way in their world. They were superbly moralistic and they understood deep philosophical questions that the Chinese have asked for a long time. But for the ordinary Chinese, there was very little contact between them. the ordinary Chinese were peasantry or in the south, in the Fujian Guangdong coastline, they were fishermen or they went to sea as merchants, as sailors. And, and that world, that difference means that when we talk about Chinese, it's very hard to find a, a definition that would, that would really describe everybody. Even in China today, people are asking the question, what is China? And that of course is a different question again. I, once I get into this, another story, is a question of what will happen to the Qing Empire. The Qing Empire was not the borders of China before. The Ming borders were co completely different. The Ming borders are what we call the Subasan, the 18 provinces, which mm -hmm. Mostly what we call Han people in the Tangren, in the Shabashan. But more than half of the China's borders today, the lands today, were actually added to the Ming Shabashan by during the Qing dynasty, which included Manchuria, 
all of Inner Mongolia. It could have been including Mongolia as well, but they got they pulled out. All of Inner Mongolia, all of Xinjiang, and Tibet, all that, and the very large territories. Make, make no mistake. I mean, the whole of Tibet is uh, is the size of several provinces in in uh, in Shabasha. So now we're talking of very large territory. So what do we mean by Tungguo? Is Tungguo the Qing, Qing Tungguo or is the Han Tungguo? Is the Man Tungguo or is the Han Tungguo? And how do you do that? If, if, it, if it was the Manchu's empire, it's not yours. As you know what happened, Sun Yat-sen was forced in the, when he took over as, uh, from the Qing dynasty, Yuan and so on, they were forced to adopt the Qing terminology to talk about Wu Zhu Kung He. So because they, they, to, to be Han alone, you lose all that territory. And uh, so Sun Yat-sen actually gave up his presidency to save the borders of China because he had to enable it to be recognized by the international community as China only if it was handed over legitimately, as it were, by the Qing to the next successor ruling group. So Yuan Shikai was invaluable in, in that sense. Yuan Shikai provided the mechanism that made it a legitimate transmission from the Qing to the Republic. And therefore, as the president of the Republic, he now inherited all the territories of the Qing. Um, Professor, when I'm listening to you, I, I tend to think that um, what the, the issues that you outlined really reflects the challenge and difficulty of China at a time, okay, 150 years ago, uh, transitioning from an imperial um, mindset or imperial notions and institutions to a, to a modern so-called nation state. So, you know, this transition, uh, both in terms of conceptual frameworks and practices has been very difficult because you have thousands of years of practices as an imperial uh, empire, but then you, when you have to fit yourself into a, a modern nation state, you know, clearly you run into some issues about how I'm going to draw the borders and how I'm going to, um, you know, uh, define nations and this and that. I remember you, one of your, your uh, books, you're talking about the nation state versus state nation. Um, you talked about the uh, the after the uh, uh, Second World War, a lot of the, uh, as a part of the decolonization, a lot of the parts of the world are going through uh, nation building because they had, they had a state before, but they did not really have the sense of nation. Mm -hmm. So, so you, they will have to go through nation building. Um, I tend to think China was in a similar way. It wasn't, you know, defined itself or practice uh, itself as a nation state before. It was, it was multiple nations maybe. And then if you want to fit into the, the contemporary uh, regime, you know, international order, and then you have to picture yourself and then define yourself as a nation state. So that's why you're also going through, uh, China was also going through the nation building process, yeah. similar to other you're, you're, you're actually, you're, you have identified the, the problem. There are two sides to the problem, however, which to me is very interesting. That the first side that you mentioned is correct. Many states were left behind by the colonial powers, which are not nations. They were just left with borders, which are drawn by the colonial powers. Then within those borders are miscellaneous peoples, 
and they somehow have to make all these peoples feel that they, are be they belong to one nation. So that's the nation building part. So that part, of course, you're, you're quite right. China has got that kind of problem. But there's a second part of the problem, second side of the problem. And that is, what is an empire? We, we take for granted that empire is as defined by the West. But the Western empire is actually based on the Roman empire. That was the classic empire. And the nature of the Roman empire, and we can go into Roman history to find the nature of, from the Roman Republic to the Roman empire. And you can shape the way the Roman empire developed, how it expanded, shrunk, changed, and then even became the Holy Roman empire, became the Catholic church uh, kind of based empire as opposed to the uh, uh, Orthodox church in the Eastern Byzantium. I mean, that kind of separation, the Roman empire was conceived in a very different sort of way, linked up in the end from Roman empire to the Holy Roman empire, a sense of unity based on history as well as religion and this deep sense of cultural identity. The Chinese empire never went through anything like that at all. The Chinese empire, maybe under Han dynasty, you can see some resemblance to the Roman empire. But after the Han dynasty, what happened? After the Jin, Wu Hu Luan Hua, then you had your Northern and Southern dynasties. The Northern dynasties were not even Chinese. They were all Xianbei or the Toba, Toba Turks, Xianbei, and, uh, and they became, but uh, what, what made them Chinese? What made them Chinese was to, to come back to civilization was Chinese language. They adopted the Chinese language. They ran the country along the lines that were developed by the Chinese from the in uh, Shangzhou Shang period down to the Chunzhou Zhangguo to Qinghai. They adopted all that. And from then onwards, they ran China the way the Chinese had practiced it. But the ruling elites were not Han Chinese, in, particularly in Beijing, all the Beijing people from the, all the Wuhu, they came from all over. In fact, they came from Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet, all came as the Wuhu uh, uh, into, into Northern China. So already the question was there. So but what kind of empire emerged from that? There was nothing like the Roman empire. There was nothing like the empires that we talk about today, the British empire or the French empire, which are really national empires. See, that is a difference. In the 19th century, the Europeans had developed the idea, deliberately or not, deliberately or not, a national empire. The East India Company, British one, became the British Empire. The Dutch one became the Dutch Empire. The French had their own too and became the French Empire. Before that, they were not, they were not, uh, they were feudal empires in one way or the other. But from the French Revolution onwards, and after the Napoleonic War in Europe, these empires became national empires. In other words, it was the empire of the French people. Every Frenchman, every French citizen is a ruling class of that empire. Every British citizen was the ruling class of the empire. This was never true in China. It was never like that. So what we're talking about is a, a different kind of empire that was accumulated through cultural, civilizational, literate, language and records of history that brought them together to run the state in a particular way. And no matter who conquered China, they found themselves having to rule China in that way so that the Chinese could thereafter record all of them as successive Chinese dynasties. 
including the Mongols, including Liao, Jin, Yuan, including the Qing, are Chinese dynasties in that sense. And what is yeah. common there is that they shared a, a, a single way of running the parts of China that was Han China, based on the heritage of a Chinese historical records all the way from Shi Ji Han Shu down to Ming Shi. In fact, now that's why they still want to write Qing Shi. Uh, up to now, they're still waiting to write Qing Shi, to publish a Qing Shi, because then they, then, they can, then they have the complete story. But that complete story is based on this civilizational record in one language and in a set of records kept under the whole section in the Siku Transu, under the section called Shi. It's not just history. Shi means everything that is recorded for that dynasty uh, or in that period. And that's a continual record from, you know, at least Dogong, Wenwu Dogong, down, to, down to, to, to the present. And if the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party can link up that whole story, then of course this becomes a continuous story. And then we're talking about a different kind of empire. And that kind of empire doesn't have to end up the same way as the other empires. When the British Empire ended, all the British had to go home to Britain. The Manchu Empire didn't do that. The Manchus didn't go back to Manchuria. Most of the Manchus stayed somewhere or other in China. And those in Manchuria have become Chinese. So it's a different story. So how can we talk about empire as if they're the same thing? So you cannot say that the in, uh, the what you call the uh, colonization the process that the West experienced when all the British and the French had to go home did not happen in China. It is not that it's not like that at all. I mean, as it turned out, today most Manchus are Chinese, most Mongols have become Chinese. So it is it's going on, but it is a something that is separate, different from the idea of empire that the West have inherited. And once you recognize there's a difference, then the story of this empire does not have to end with exactly the same story as nation and nation building. It can build its own nation in its own way, following its own tradition, and take into account that heritage of the Tianxia that they had uh, established from way back from the Shangzhou period. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah, so, so uh, how I understand is the Chinese identity is about cultural values, is about the language. So uh, it's not along the ethnic lines in any way. So mm -hmm. that's kind of you know, what you were also talking about as well. And then, and then clearly the Chinese nation, it's sort of a multi-ethnic group, essentially. You know, it is not just Han. So that's how I understand the, uh, the lessons from the history that you just outlined. Okay, so let's move on to the last uh, theme. Uh, the last theme is, is about symb symbiotic relationship among civilizations. Um, Samuel Huntington sounded the alarm of the clash of civilizations in the early 1990s. He was of the view that all future conflicts would occur at the boundaries between different cultures and civilizations. He specifically singled out Islamic and Chinese civilizations as the two largest threats to the Western civilization. Uh, we will not dwell on the merits of his arguments today because this is not our focus. Um, I would like to draw out the other side of the narratives, i.e. 
how different civilizations inspired and learned from each other and the symbiotic relationships among different cultures in human history. Um, we would probably all agree that the spirit of seeking commonality while respecting the differences is sorely lacking in today's uh, geopolitics. So highlighting the narratives of civilizational symbiotic relationship is to ensure that humanity learn good lessons from its past. So here, uh, Professor Wong, can you share some examples of how different civilizations nurtured and inspired each other and how civilizations survived and thrived in the symbiotic uh, relationship? I think my starting point has always been that civilizations don't correspond to political borders. And once you take away the idea of political borders, even that, even that idea that, that the borders of civilization, the idea that there's a border between one civilization and another is a false one because it's always linked to political borders that as, as people see it normally. So once you start with the proposition that civilizations don't have political borders, they have different kinds of borders, that borders about uh, you know, how one set of morality, one set of religion becomes another set of religion, which is the dominant one and so on. There are other, other kinds of borders which are involved cultural values, religions, involves languages and, and other institutions and so on. That is true, but it's not political borders. That's number one. Number two is that when civilizations come to in contact, as in Eurasia, in Eurasia, those people in Central Asia didn't have their own distinctive civilization as such. They had different cultures, but they borrowed and took the civilization and they mixed them together and they brought them, they transported them back and forth as they moved. When they moved back and forth, they brought with them whatever they learned from the other side, so to speak. And then what, what you find is that, take for example, i give, give you a specific example, the best example that I know from China's experience, and that is Buddhism. The Buddhism is the best example that I know. I think there are others who can, other people can, Islam is another one in a different form. But Buddhism was entirely peaceful. There was no borders. In fact, there is no border. There, are no, there were no borders to Buddhism as a religion. Today there are. There are countries of Buddhists next door. They're not Buddhists and they draw borders. These are political borders, are modern artificial ones to draw lines between cultures, different cultures, different civilization. But as I understand it, Buddhism had no borders. When they arrived in China, China welcomed it. And when they found that the Buddhists offered something that the Chinese did not have, there were gaps in Chinese civilization. There were sort of areas where the Chinese were lacking. Some of the metaphysical ideas, some of the spiritual ideas were not lacking in the Confucian and Taoist tradition, but the Buddhists brought them and introduced them to the Chinese. Once the Chinese recognized that these were something they didn't have and thought was valuable, they adopted it wholesale without any real difficulty. And within a couple of generations, it was started to spread. And then within a couple of centuries, the whole country was Buddhist in one way or the other. And different schools of Buddhism, no doubt, but they were all Buddhist, no borders. And in fact, as it turned out, Buddhism virtually died out in India and thrived in China and elsewhere. And this is itself a fact, interesting story. Uh, so that is an example and the Chinese having taken this, filled in a lot of the gaps which were missing in Confucianism and in Taoism. 
So after the Tang Dynasty, when the three were all equally important in the eyes of the Tang rulers, when he came to the Song Dynasty, and the Song emperors trusted the Confucians to take over, help them run the country, then the Confucian philosophers were intelligent enough and sensitive enough to say, let us draw from all these rich heritage of Taoism and Buddhism to enrich our understanding of Confucianism. And they reinterpreted so much of Confucius by using Taoist and Buddhist concepts and ideals to better understand and give further depth and improve its spiritual nature to in, in, in and therefore you produce a people like your, your Zhu Xi and the Lu Yuan and all the, and down, right down to, uh, to, uh, to the Ming dynasty to, to produce a completely different set of ideals uh, between the Zhu Xi and the Wang, Wang, Wang Yangming kind of schools. All, all these were Confucians adopting new ideas to try and enrich it. But what happened was, and this is where the state comes in, the state found it useful to take one part of this Confucian debate and turn it into the official ideology of the state, making it the basis of the examinations, making it the only way in which you become a high official of the Ming dynasty, and in effect, in that way, corrupted that whole process altogether. And from then onwards, I think Confucianism closed its doors, became very narrow, completely defined by one set of interpretations of the Confucian uh, classics, and that became the classics for all the examinations all the way down to 1904. And that was the basis of it. So they closed shop, as it were. And that kind of closed shop is a state-determined thing. It's not natural to the civilization, not natural to the way people think. And when politics comes into it, it's the politics that actually prevents civilizations from being the kind of free, a way it operates when one civilized one group of civilized people meet another civilized people group of civilized people and they recognize that they are different and that somebody they have something to offer us we learn from it very happy to learn from it because if it helps improve us we will learn from it but if the state intervenes and says you may not learn from it because it's foreign once you draw political boundaries then you kill off the kind of interchange that civilizations offer. So this is why I actually, if I don't want to open the debate about Huntington, I don't, uh, I, I, I think Huntington did us a good favor by raising the question. But what I have, have made very clear, he was really talking about political boundaries because he's a political scientist. Mm, mm. So he was primarily concerned about the politics, the political borders of, of the West. And he called it civilization, but actually it's political power as, as, as the West had it. They had political power, and then now they were challenged by two other groups of people who don't accept that and are offering alternatives and who are rejecting their political power. And to him, that is what it's all about. And he was trying to find it in the civilization. And maybe the civilizations play a role, but it's not because of civilization. It's because of the politics that has raised all these walls between civilizations. Because you see civilization through Eurasia, for example, Look at the way the Christians, the Muslims, and Chinese ideas back and forth spread, it's particularly Christians and the Muslims, they spread across all the way from the Mediterranean 
in all, every direction, where were the borders? And it's a civilizational thing. And in fact, quite frankly, I think another thing that I don't agree with Huntington with is to draw a sharp line between Christianity and Islam. They're not, they belong, they believe in the same God. They have the, they came from the same set of scriptures, which really came from the Hebrews. The Hebrew Bible is really the source of the origins, the one God, the Hebrew Bible is where the, the same source, but they differed on political grounds again. And the, the fact that the Islamic world was created by a bunch of Arabs, <laughs> Muhammad's Arabs, who conquered large parts of territory and then had borders. So that's again the politics that drew the line between Christianity and Islam. And the Crusades where they fought each other for, for that long, over a thousand years. And therefore that line is almost impossible to cross. But at its source, it was really part of one civilization, what they call a Mediterranean civilization, divided between those who were Northern European, pushed to the edges by the Central Asian European, the Indo-European people and Semitic people who dominated the Eastern, Europe, Eastern Mediterranean and Central Asia and blocked them from the cynic and Indic world. I mean, if you put it in those terms. Thank you so much. Let's really hope that um, we're going to have more and more civilizational exchanges and mutual appreciations, uh, regardless of the political differences in the future. So we'll have a better world. Um, I think we're seriously overrun, actually. So I better give the floor back to Li Xing and then I, those loads of questions coming out of the audience already. Yes. Thank you so much, Professor Wang. Each time listening to Professor, we'll just hope the time passes slower. But uh, we still move on to the Q&A session, as we promised. And we have a few invited guests to uh, kick off the session. Let me first invite a good friend, an old friend of Professor Wang, also Professor, Professor Roger Ems, the Humanity Chair Professor of Peking University, also the Co-Chair of Academic Advisory Council of Begrun Research Center at Peking U. So uh, please, Roger. Um, thank you very much, Lixian. Um, I must say, uh, Gongwu, uh, your panoramic, holistic, organic way of understanding, uh, I wish I could do philosophy like that. Um, my question, I just want to follow uh, Song Bing and on sort of this positive, sort of symbiotic um, direction. We live in a world today where this kind of Westphalian modern nation state um, system uh, still prevails, where you have individual sovereign equal uh, nation states um, looking for their own interests. And so you, what you have is you have a kind of, with all the good that comes from it, you still have a kind of fragmented, um, anarchic international world. Um, but but that, that model is being challenged, I think, on two sides. Number one, it, there, it, it, there's an abject failure with that model to deal with the pressing issues of our time, global warming, a pandemic, um, uh, uh, income inequities, uh, environmental degradation, all of the issues that we deal with today, that Westphalian model doesn't work. And then the second element is the rise of East Asia and particularly China, where China and India too just don't fit 
that kind of Westphalian uh, model at all. And so my question, and it's a very important question for me, is um, your notion of civilization is, uh, is, is an alternative in the sense that what, what binds a civilization, uh, language, some kind of identity, some kind of probably, and, and Bing mentioned this, and that is some kind of a minimalist uh, morality that, that a civilization somehow or other has a solidarity that is based upon um, some kind of shared value that they can use as uh, a, a basis for critique as well as for uh, uh, binding themselves together. And so at a time when we need planetary thinking, when we need to treat the world as a world, when we need to get out of this kind of fragmented uh, situation that we have, is there a resource? Is, is your notion of civilization a resource for uh, thinking in the direction of a new geopolitical order? Can, can we learn from that idea? I think uh, in theory, we can. In practice, I think what, to me, what went wrong with the post-Second World War United Nations idea of a world of equal nations and 180 odd, 80 odd of them was that uh, they're all equal because that's a fiction and that we pretended they were all equal. They were never equal and everybody knew it was never equal. In, in fact, the, the gap between the smallest and the largest is so great, it's impossible to think of them as equal in, in, under any, circum, any circumstances. So if you live with a fiction, you live with something that is not true, you're asking for trouble. I mean, you, how can you develop a, a world system in which humanity thinks of cooperating with one another when you start with a, with a lie to say that we're equal? Of course, in international law, you can make that. And coming, let's say I'm living at the moment in Singapore, a small country. Of course, the idea of equal equality is wonderful for small countries. It protects them from big countries and stops big countries from bullying you. So you, this is a, 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 a machinery, a, a tool to, to, to defend yourself against others. So all the small countries have benefited from this idea, hence the chaos in the United Nations, because they're all joining in and saying that we're equal. But the trouble is that there are at least four or five nations in the world that are so big, it doesn't fit. I mean, to call them nations in the first place is, is a misnomer. In that way, although United States is a nation, it's probably is 50 nations in, in, in the eyes of some others. But China also has a problem. India has always been 50 nations or more. I mean, it's never been, it's never been one nation. So they're used to it. At least the Indians are accustomed to being many. The Chinese are not so accustomed, but even they Chinese have been a bit more accustomed. And they've been accustomed for thousands of years. The Americans are new to this. And this, I think, where the, the problem lies actually probably with America more than anybody else, because they set it up as a kind of utopian idea that this is going to be the basis on which the whole world will work, uh, and all nations being equal in the United Nations organization. And they set it up. And I think they had the best of reasons for it. They were idealistic. I mean, it came, it came from Woodrow Wilson's uh, League of Nations idea that somehow this will maintain peace in the world. 
I, so I admired them for the idealism under, underneath it all, except that it was built on a fiction. And you cannot sustain that indefinitely. You can, you can live with it for a while to reorganize some things and so on, but you cannot sustain it and pretend all the time that we're all equal. And so what we're facing today is that the United States have discovered that as long as China was weak and divided and fighting civil wars all the time, that was fine. China can be left alone, nothing to worry about, just help them a little bit here and there and tell them what to do and they, they take your advice. That was fine. But when these guys got serious about building something matching the United or trying to match the United States, not, not necessarily to be better, but to be as good as, or learning everything they can from the United States, and they have twice or three times, four times your population, and then the economy is actually working, not failing. They're not collapsing as they, they should have, or you know, under the Communist Party and so on. And they didn't, and all this is very worrying, and I can understand why the Americans in the, in, in the White House are very anxious about, feel very insecure. What did they do? They created a Frankenstein by helping China uh, somewhere along the line. Because they helped China with very different intentions. And they wanted to make China look, look like America. But again, that's again another fiction. How did they even believe they could make 1.4 billion Chinese behave like Americans or think like Americans or live like Americans? I, mean, I, I, I find it just incredible that anybody should actually believe that that could happen. But anyway, with best of intention, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. With the best of intentions, that's what they want. They hope that China would, when it gets rich, would become like Americans and they'll be good guys thereafter. And when they didn't, they got very angry. And I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but I'm just saying that when you build a whole new system in 1945 after something that was not true, I think we were just asking for trouble. And we have ruined the opportunity because when I was young, people talk about humanity, one world. There was a lot of one world talk. In fact, the whole, I remember being a member of the United Nations Student Association as, as when I was an undergraduate. And we thought the United Nations was the savior of the world. We all become part of the United Nations and we'll all be equal and we're all sharing all the good things, the goodies in the world and the world will be a better place. And I think many of us in my generation believe that for quite a long while. But in the meantime, of course, the Cold War and all the other things reminded us that on the ground is nothing as simple as that. And for us in this part of the world, where we had the Vietnam War just on our doorstep, and that was a nasty, really brutal war, to be quite honest. It was much worse than the war in the Middle East in some ways, because that was fought by people who knew how to fight and really fought, unlike people who, who, who gave up so easily. In, in Vietnam, they really fought bitterly, not only with them against the, uh, the uh, allies, but among themselves, among the Vietnamese. It's such a brutal war. And we were in the neighborhood watching this as a young, young, young lecturer in the university. I was watching this with great alarm because all those ideals that we shared at the beginning were all seemed very hollow. This is, this is just fighting for dominance, for absolute power, for control. It's either you or us. No compromise. So in the end, the Americans had to pull out. And of course, we've readjusted, but all the idealism that we once had, I think, began to fade away. And it's been fading away, I'm afraid, uh, 
ever since. And uh, the end of the Cold War offered a different kind of opportunity that the United States have been the sole superpower would have the will and the capacity and the wisdom to make use of that powerful position to rearrange a world for that one humanity to, to take over. But instead of which, they wanted to go around telling the world how to be Americans and wanting everybody to be like them. And if you're not like them, they'll tell you how to do it. And they can't do it. And they're getting it wrong again and again and again. And how does it tell the rest of the world? We, how can we believe that the Americans know what they're doing from now onwards? And, and this is, of course, very sad because in many ways they had wonderful ideals from your constitution, American constitution, and some wonderful ideals which from the 18th century and the 19th century, they were the great ideals for, they were a great step forward for the human, for the human uh, condition and really offered tremendous opportunities, which we still are very proud of in many ways. But some of them we have achieved, but the fundamental problems of power, sharing of power, division of power, wealth, distribution, and so on, concentrations of wealth, of, of really obscene concentrations of wealth compared to what it used to be. Um, is this the kind of globalization that we really wanted for ourselves? Is this what we set out to do really for the world? Or is this something that willy-nilly just came about because nobody was paying enough attention or thinking hard enough about what these ideals fundamentally meant? And I think this is a sad and a, to me a very tragic development. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Wang. And um, as always, I found historians actually offer better explanations to our current affairs. Uh, let me switch to another um, invited guest um, who is a very familiar face to many, um, Mr. Andrew Shen, the Distinguished Fellow Fund Global Institute, also known as the former Chairman of the Hong Kong Securities and Future Commissions. So Andrew, please. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Wang. You are a true sage. Uh, I, every time I listen to you, I learn, you know, very, very wise things. Um, the issue that you've brought, which is the difference between civilization and political states, hinges upon what China conceives as Tianxia. And, uh, you know, Tianxia, is it a civilizational Tianxia or a political Tianxia? and the concept of tribute. Uh, the West are terrified that when China rises, they all have to pay tribute to China. Can you uh, explain from a historical perspective how the Chinese interpret tributary uh, concept? Well, this is actually quite a complicated issue because the Chinese original idea of tribute was actually internal, it was a domestic thing. It was the term itself was used in the feudal ages of, uh, of the uh, pre prior to Qin Han, all the way from uh, Zhou, Zhou Dynasty, when uh, you pay tribute to the, to the emperor. It's a kind of gift uh, to show your feudal loyalty. Or it, it, it really stems from a different set of relationship between subject and, and ruler in the past. But that, that part was entirely domestic, and it became a kind of a second kind of a tax as it were, uh, of, of a kind which uh, you, each province or each prefecture would send a tribute to the emperor. It doesn't have to be much, but it, it's a symbol, a sign of respect and uh, to keep up a good relationship. 
that was expanded gradually to uh, others. Uh, and it, it developed, I think, essentially out of the fact that when other people came, uh, they wanted to trade. And the Chinese didn't actually pay much attention to trade. As you know, the Shidai Fujieji, uh, in fact, the Confucian tradition, uh, really put the merchants way down the social scale for all sorts of very good reasons in their minds. But as a net result was that trade was treated as something rather despicable and very suspect and uh, something that you don't want to encourage. And so in the end, if it could be, if we take another form, it would be much more respectable. So if, uh, if the foreigners come with to want to trade, instead of trading with local traders, you offer your gifts to the ruler uh, through the officials, send it up to the emperor and the emperor uh, in, in gratitude or show, show appreciation would give you something in return and that would form a kind of uh, trading thing. And in between, you can do some minor trading on the side, uh, as it were. But it, there were certain ritualistic, bureaucratic uh, practices that emerged out of that, which as it went along, it found to be a very useful way of uh, maintaining peace on the border. Everybody was happy because if you're just giving gifts to the emperor and the emperor gives you something in return, maybe even more than what you gave them, what you gave the emperor, uh, everybody was happy. In the meantime, some trade was, was taking place. The merchants were sufficiently satisfied. This thing could go on without any friction. And then they found, discovered that it's also a useful way of determining whether your neighbors are friendly or not. So uh, again, as part of a kind of defense mechanism to know who, who, who could be potential enemies and who are, who will never be your enemies your tributary system is a kind of channel to determine who is friendly and who is not. And if they all want to send tribute, it's a friendliness. But actually, it's, a, it's not, it doesn't mean anything. You, you don't, nothing that follows from that. That's how it began. You go through the whole of the Tang Dynasty, you have missions, hundreds of missions from different parts of Southeast Asia, from Central Asia, and so on. You find that there's nothing, nothing really political involved in it. It was very much to do with friendship, determining whether friend or foe, and trading, determining who who gets some some profits out of it. And that I think was more or less so, without anybody complaining. It was really very minor. It became only serious after this uh, Mongol period, and when Mingtaizu. Uh, took up the policy of not allowing Chinese merchants to trade. Private trade was not allowed. When he banned that, then there was only way you can trade, as it were, is to pay tribute. That is the only way. You, and then he created a bureaucratic system. And of course, it had defensive purposes too, because they also found it very useful, particularly for the continental enemies. Because with the, with the Southeast Asia, there were no enemies. They're nothing, they're not frightened of anybody. This was all ritualistic and other sort of ceremonial. But in the, in the in Central Asia, this was meaningful. If if some Mongol uh, tribal confederation refused to pay tribute, uh, then you have reason to believe that they are plotting something or, or wanting to plan something to come attack you at some point or other. At least these are indications. So you began to use it as a barometer of friendly and non-friendly distinct relationships you determine what gifts you give who comes 
all these get bureaucratized, you know, hierarchical things get set up. You, you, you give it to the bureaucrats, they know how to do it. They set it up in such a way that uh, then everybody knows his place. And then you build up a, 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 a set of rules and, the, and then each group has to follow those rules. And then if you don't follow the rules, you can't trade properly. So you want to be profitable, you have to follow the rules. You want to make money, you have to follow the rules. So this, once you bureaucratize the whole thing, you have, to, and then you, then because of the, again, I think it was because of the Mongol Empire, because before that, the Song didn't have the power to do anything like that anyway. They were so weak, barely able to survive. But after the Mongols, Ming Taizu, when he created the distributory system to get, to prevent private trade, the bureaucrats set up something in the hierarchy to emphasize the, the majesty of the emperor and the hierarchy started to use language as a, you know, uh, praiseworthy and, and you have to formula, formulate language to show your great respect and uh, admiration for, for the Ming emperor. And so all these things get built in into the system. So the language became more and more stilted, but everybody had to fill it and sign it, you know, because your, your, your envoy turns up, he doesn't sign it, he doesn't get to, to get, doesn't get to the court to pay the tribute, so he has to sign it. So all these things are kept in the Chinese record. But as we discovered from the, on the other side, there was nothing. None of these countries bothered to even record that they sent a mission to China. Yeah, almost nothing. And in, the, in Central Asia, they were recorded as something else altogether, simply as a, a trade relationship and so on. So while the Chinese records built up a fantastic sort of file and uh, uh, big filing cabinets are full of letters which are full of admiration for the Ming emperor and so on, uh, the other side knew nothing, didn't care to which. They, they have their own reason. And the perfect example of this is the one country that is supposed to pay tribute, and that's Vietnam. You see, Vietnam has a special relationship because the Chinese thought Vietnam was once theirs, and somehow in the Song Dynasty, they managed to get away and set up an independent state. They said, there always some feeling that Vietnam should not be an independent state and, uh, and should really be part of China. And a couple of times they tried to change that. But the thing is that they made the Vietnamese pay a special kind of respect. And this is why the Vietnamese to this day deeply resent the Chinese because they had a particularly difficult uh, position and it's exceptional. Nobody else had to do that. Even the Koreans didn't have to do that. It was the Vietnamese particularly. And, and what happens, what did Vietnamese do? They do all the things that the Chinese demand. They fill in all the forms and send up all these uh, highfalutin letters and so forth. But in their own records, they didn't pay tribute to China. The Vietnamese king was a Tianzi in his own right. He had his own tributaries. All the tribal people around uh, in, in nearby pay tribute to him as the Tianzi. Uh, and, and so he was a Tianxia, a Vietnamese Tianxia. Of course, he, they kept it secret from the Chinese. They had their own, own record. But you know, everybody was quite happy. You, 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 certain rituals, face shaving, and you formalized and so on. And everything was understood as long as you don't have any hostility, behave accordingly, follow the rules, no problems. But of course, in the end, by that time, the Ming, halfway to the Ming Dynasty, the Europeans arrived. And once the Portuguese arrived, the Spanish and the Philippines, the Dutch arrived, 
then the problem becomes different. What is the sense of tribute? Now we go back to the Roman Empire again. The Roman Empire tribute is somewhat different. The, the tribute in Roman Empire was something from a, 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 a state that had conquered by the Romans, by, by the Roman army, conquered it, part of the Roman Empire, and you pay tribute. They were totally different people. It's not, not like Chinese domestic tribute in the past within the, within the empire. This is co colonial paying tribute. So the term itself, the Europeans thought this is not this is not right. From the very beginning, you might say the the, the, the very using the same words like using word empire meaning the Roman Empire, using word tribute meaning what was happening in the Roman Empire. All these cause a lot of uncertainty, insecurity, but it's a, and reluctance to accept it. I mean, even then, uh, when the Dutch really wanted to trade with China, they were willing to pay tribute. They paid tribute if they wanted to, but except that in that case, the Chinese didn't want them. They say, all you people have to go to Macau. Everything has to go to Macau because we've given the sort of contract to the Portuguese in Macau to deal with all of you foreigners and you have to go to Macau. So the Dutch couldn't do it because the Portuguese knew if they gave the Dutch an inch, they'd take a mile and put all sorts of obstacles there. So the Dutch had to find other ways of getting to China by using the Chinese in Southeast Asia. They use the Chinese in Southeast Asia because so many of them, they use the Chinese, particularly the Fujian, who further away from Macau, they, had to, they can go to Xiamen and Zhangzhou and Fuzhou and so on, particularly Hokkien's, and they become, the, as you saw, the Babas, the Pranakans, grew out of that Dutch special privilege for Chinese merchants in Dutch territories to trade with China on their behalf. And, and this, is, this worked very well, both sides, benefited greatly. And they did try to set a base in Taiwan. They actually took Southern Taiwan, had uh, Fort Selandia in, 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 uh, Holland, in, in Taiwan, and uh, they were driven out by Deng Chenggung, <laughs> driven out. But and then they tried very various means, and the, so did the Portuguese. Uh, but Portuguese, no, Portuguese are fine, they had Macau. The Spanish tribe also had some problems and decided in the end, Spain and Portugal, the two kings came together and Spain was using Macau in a much more friendly way. But they would not trust the Dutch because they were not Catholics. I mean, the, at least the Spanish and the Portuguese had something in common. These Dutch guys didn't even talk about religion. They only wanted to make money, you know, <laughs> but they couldn't be trusted. So you can see all these complications arising out of a completely different set of people coming in and then interpreting it in a way which in fact the locals never bothered. I mean, I've been looking for sources in Southeast Asian languages about paying tribute to China. There's none. They don't talk about it. I mean, in fact, the only ones we found very clear are the Malay states like Kedah, Kelantan, Tregano, sending the Bungamas to Thailand, to Bangkok. And that was regarded as a kind of tribute, the Bungamas, the golden flower. But again, the kind of symbolic sign of uh, respect and accepting your particular authority. And that's one that is recorded. But there is no record that I have seen of any of these Indonesian countries on their records that they send tribute to China in any political sense. Sure, Professor Wang. I think I'm asking this question probably on behalf of many people. It's about Afghanistan. Um, people say Afghanistan is the graveyard for imperial powers for the Soviet Union was there for 10 years and then the United States was there for 20 years and then of course they all ended in failure so 
from your Eurasian core theory point of view, can you share your insights on the role of Afghanistan in the history, in shaping the history? Well, there's so much history on that part of the world. Uh, I was always very struck by the fact that Alexander got there. I mean, this is way back when I was catching up on my European history, that uh, Alexander's armies got as far as Afghanistan and into India, a bit of India as well, if you use modern boundaries. And that before that, the people who ran uh, Afghanistan, many, many of them were descended from people who are Indo-European languages, speakers of Indo-European language, related to Iranian, to Persian, or related to other languages in, in Central Asia. Some have disappeared now, but some have, uh, have uh, passed on and passed, merged into Persian and into Hindi, into Indian languages as they, they all related. I mean, the Sanskrit and the Persian branches of the Indo-European languages of the Central Asian part. And all of that involved Afghanistan in one way or the other. I mean, either passing through south, southwards or northwards. I mean, when the, when the Muslims uh, took over Persia, took over the Sassanid Empire, and they took over, they went through Afghanistan into Central Asia. When the, when the Buddhists went through, they went to Afghanistan, through Afghanistan into China. I mean, in fact, uh, I was, when I remember as a young student, when they discovered a lot of the so-called Indian Buddhists were not Indians at all. They were actually from Bactria or Parthia and from Kushan, Kushan Empire, which is really based on roughly where West Pakistan and Afghanistan is, somewhere between Kabul and Peshawar or Rawalpindi you know, or Islamabad, somewhere in, in that area. So this is where it was. I mean, as you know, the beautiful two Buddhist uh, Buddhas that have been destroyed. That's, that's part of it all. And this is mind boggling. I mean, the, the Indo-European peoples, the Indo-European speakers anyway, they came out of Central Asia. That was a crucial part where they branched off into India or into Iran or in both ways. And then Iran into India. And when the Mongols and the Turks came in later on under the Mughals as Muslims, they came through again through that way. But as I said, to go back, Alexander went that far. That was the whole idea of Alexandrian empire was to take over everything from the Iranians from the Persians. That's what the Greeks were about, get, get, defeat those Persians who had been threatening them for a long time. They pushed back and they pushed all the way. Of course, Alexander died, he was too young. So he was succeeded by one of his generals but in, in the end they pulled back. But the fact is that they got there long enough to leave actually quite a lot of Greek relics and Greek ideas, Greek ideas in architecture, in art and so on, in, in, that, in that part of the world. It is really quite extraordinary. So it was a kind of meeting place uh, for this, the three civilizations, the Mediterranean pushing eastwards, the Chinese pushing the uh, various Mongol Turks and others out, and the Indo-European ones getting into India when they settle in India in the, after the end of the Indus Valley civilization, and all of North India was people by these uh, people who are speaking Sanskrit and, uh, and Paprakrit and the languages which became Hindi today, uh, that event came, came through those areas. So when that, we look at that point of view, from that point of view, I would say there are two great hubs for Central Asia to penetrate 
into the other areas. One, the other is the Caucasus, the Volga, the Volga Delta from Caspian Sea onwards into, into, uh, into, the, into the Caucasus, into the Mediterranean, and the Afghan part into the whole of, two civilizations were actually at the mercy of the Central European powers. And for China, it was, you know, the Dunhuang, that was their route into China. And of course, they made use of that too, except in the case of China, because of the Chinese empire, that, that Tianxia of theirs, they managed to de develop a sufficiently strong defense system with sufficient continuity, to come back to continuity, to make that more and more difficult until in the end, it was almost impossible for them to come across. It was the Han Chinese together with the Manchus and the Mongols on the other side to keep the Muslims out. And that became firm. It's quite remarkable that, that Muslim, after the, the Battle of Talas, after that, the Muslim never went much beyond that. From the middle of Xinjiang, Muslim on one side and non-Muslim on the other. Some Muslims came across as people, but the territory was never dominated by Muslims halfway in, in Xinjiang. And at least that is a sign of the unity and the successful defense system that the Chinese, together with Manchus and Mongols, or Buddhists, non-Muslims, non managed to preserve, as it were, from the tremendous force that was coming from, from, uh, from, from the West. Uh, so one can go on, but Afghanistan in that sense, continue to my mind, continues to be one of the hard hubs of this Eurasian core when it pushes out, where, where it tries to push out. And when we come back to this Chinese thinking today about the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative and so on, I think we're quite clear that at least by sea, they can probably succeed financially. But by land, my own feeling is that it's almost impossible. I cannot admit and visit how they could actually make money out of the road part of it, the overland continental part of it. But what they need is for a defense system. The, the road in the roadside is, or the belt side is meant to consolidate the defense system on the continent so that they absolutely could have that line division between them and the others un, 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 uh, unthreatened. But where they can make money is the maritime side. They hope so, at least there's a chance that it'll be financially profitable on the, on, the, on the sea side, the maritime side. So then they have to find this balance again. One is to have to make the economic uh, uh, surpluses that you need to in order to, sh to shore up your defenses where you are more vulnerable. At least there's a kind of balance that I think the BRI, to me, in my mind, what it really stands for. Thank you so much. Honestly, important. <laughs> Indeed. We have actually a lot of questions regarding BRI, but like this or other questions, but you'll notice that most of the questions are touched upon in Professor Wang's answers his elaboration, his narrative, and his framework. So um, we're running out of time and we shouldn't keep you for too long, but uh, we started with Professor Wang's home. We want to end with another question that bring our dialogue. 
to his kitchen. So one very fun question is what, some of, what are some of the more interesting examples of food exchange in India? Very vivid glimpse of the uh, civilization exchange. For example, chili pepper are key ingredients in Sichuan cuisine, but they're originally from the Americas. And you can tell I'm Sichuanese, you call that haijiao from overseas, chili from overseas. And the words for tea in Russia and in English differ because exchanges with the speakers of different Chinese dialects. So do you, Professor, have no any other similar but lesser known examples, especially in this region? Uh, where food is concerned, they're definitely borderless. <laughs> they move, depending on what, what you like. What I think really is astonishing to me, I mean, I, I come from Southeast Asia. Andrew would understand what I'm saying. Astonishing to me is how successful the durian has been in Beijing. When I heard my Malaysian friends uh, arranging from durians to be flown to Beijing to be sold and at tremendous high, high prices, I was utterly amazed. That is unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how Andrew felt about that one. When I, that, that's an example of how food definitely has no borders. It, it depends on the nature of your stomach and your, in your, in your palate, what, what you like. And that, that, that can open up all kinds of doors. I mean, the things that I, I never dreamt of eating in, in, my, in my life, I've now eaten and found that I've survived. And I, I, it's, quite, it's quite nice. I eat it again since, it, it, since I survived. So I think food is marvelous. I mean, the way, for example, I don't know about uh, Beijing today, but, but Singapore, unimaginable what you can buy in Singapore today, what, what the restaurants offer. I would say almost anything. In the major cities of the world today, you can find almost every cuisine available in the major cities today. I think London, New York, San Francisco, for that matter, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore. I think you can find any kind of food you want. And it's quite extraordinary. And of course, Singapore is ridiculous because Singapore grows nothing, almost nothing. Everything is imported anyway. So it has to come from somewhere else. So how else, if not, borderless food. I mean, the other day my, I had met somebody who really surprised me. He found very good Mexican food in Singapore. He thought he was recommending me a Mexican restaurant. I mean, I heard of, I've heard of one or two, but I didn't realize they were any good. But he said they were very good. And he, he says he knows. You see, you see what it, the surprises in today's world is, is that's a different story. But that's, a, that's part of a different kind of globalization, which is, I think, much more welcome than the kind of globalization which comes from scolding people. Why aren't you not like me? <laughs> that note, I want uh, all of our participants, there are still more than 200 of them after two hours, to thank Professor Wan for this wonderful treat. This really, the, the, so much food for thought. If we have two hours to spend in our life, these are the best two hours to spend. And um, thank you so much, Professor Wan, for your insights, for your sharing. And um, please take care. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you thank all. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye.